Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you so much for listening. My guest for this episode is Brent Mayo of Stagiaire Wines. Brent makes zero zero wines with a lot of heart and hard work on Treasure Island in the San Francisco Bay. This year, Brent also organized and held the Wine From Here Wine Fair with the help of several other people, of course. I'm very impressed with the humility he embraces with the name of his winery, Stagiaire, the apprentice. We never really graduate if we continue to seek and follow our curiosity and passion to make better wine. We will always have more to learn, and I love that Brent owns that with his brand. I also love Brent's desire for and commitment to honesty and bringing the highest level of integrity to his winemaking. And I, of course, value his promotion and support of making wine a local, ecological, farm-to-table experience. Now, this episode has a backstory. We recorded an entire episode before this, which I decided not to release. I thought I had done a disservice to you and to Brent by drawing him out about some of the discouraging and frustrating aspects of being a winemaker today in California and elsewhere. However, in addition to those negative comments, there were some really good and practical and very helpful things as well, and tons of information and a fun conversation. So I've released this original conversation on Patreon as a subscribers-only content. If you'd like to support this podcast and listen to that previous conversation, the link to our Patreon channel where you can subscribe will be in the show notes and on the support page at organicwinepodcast.com. Also, as we recorded this episode, our connection was interrupted and dropped multiple times. Where I couldn't seamlessly splice these pieces together, I dropped in a little audio cue, those chirping birds, so that you'd understand this was one of those places where, unfortunately, I couldn't make a smooth transition. Having said all that, this episode is actually fantastic. Brent and I knew each other better the second time around, and we had a very thoughtful and positively focused conversation. I'm really happy to share this with you. Enjoy. Brent, welcome. Thank you again for doing this. Of course. Adam, thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this again, because this is the second time that we're doing this. And the reason being that the first time... I wanted to talk about these really specific things having to do with the financial difficulties of making wine and some of the challenges of what's going on with the natural wine world. And I feel like I led you down a path that just had us talking about all the problems and everything that's wrong with wine. And I really wanted to do a, you know, a better job of letting you talk about why you love wine and why you make the wine that you do. And despite all of these challenges, you, you persist and you have, you find, you still find yourself doing this with passion and joy i think yeah. i don't know you can you can let me know if that's true but um, i think it's true and then i yeah and i wanted to focus on that like because i think that's what i realized is like both you and i agree that there are like these massive challenges as well as problems and yet both of us still really love doing it and continue to do it anyway and we're either idiots or there's something more to it than that and i think that something more to it is really exciting to me to talk about and and so maybe maybe as a way into this getting to that point is, you know, well, please introduce yourself again and talk about, you know, your winery and what it's called and what you do. Um, and then we'll go back and see where you started and how you've you've came down this slippery slope to, <laughs> to being a winemaker. So, yeah. So <laughs> who are you and talk about your winery and, and what you do? Um, yeah. 
Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Brent, and I'm an idiot. So <laughs> um, maybe it's prettier to think that I'm like an idiot savant, and that's maybe more generous or not, depending on how you think about it. Um, but yeah, I, I uh, make the Stagiaire wines, S-T-A-G-I-A-I-R-E, way more eyes than you would think. Yeah, and it always confuses I, me. Yeah, not good for search engine optimization. For anyone <laughs> considering starting a, any company, consider how easy it is to spell and type into Google. Yeah. Um, but I, I started making wines in Santa Cruz in 2018 after uh, kind of learning the ropes in Australia and France and uh, a bit in the United States and New Zealand. Um and in 2020 through 2021, I kind of transitioned uh, to my current sort of version where I'm living in the Bay Area and making wines on Treasure Island, this tiny little island between San Francisco and Oakland. No vineyards there. Um, still working with a lot of my Santa Cruz sites and getting grapes from friends in Sonoma and Mendocino counties north of here. Everything's been like very organic. And increasingly more so since starting and uh, everything's been zero, zero, which means no finding or filtering, no additives of any sort and no preservatives, no sulfites, um, with the exception of like one wine in 2018 where I did some with and some without and they were both pretty bad. So I decided to just not use sulfites at all anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um now, do you ever lean into the Treasure Island thing? I mean, that seems like kind of a unique thing there. Is, are there other wineries doing Treasure Island winemaking? I mean, I don't want the like location <laughs> of the winery to be the selling point of what I do, but it is kind of freaking cool, like literally and yeah. figuratively. Like, I mean, we're in the middle of the San Francisco Bay, cool water around us. It stays like very relatively cool most of the year and humid so for barrel storage it's pretty nice um it's weird like very twilight zoney out there you know the the island was made the the section i'm on was this man-built section that was for the world's fair way back in the day and then it became kind of a military base um some people say like there's radioactive stuff on the island but i don't really think that's true like i don't i don't know um I just feel like it's pretty easy to measure and someone would have like verified that and everyone would be talking about it. Like I've thought about buying like a Geiger counter on Amazon oh, yeah. just to measure it, just <laughs> to be able to tell people for sure. But maybe it's the secret to my wines being like good and stable. Just that radiation. <laughs> That's why you don't need That sulfates. radiation. Yeah. I don't yeah. need sulfites. I got radiation just <laughs> sterilizing everything. Um, <laughs> do you have any children? Uh, uh yeah i don't i don't think i i need any uh it's yeah. not i i yeah it's not up to me if someone else wanted kids maybe i'd give it a try but might not be a an a possibility anymore nice um okay cool well that, that is kind of just a unique thing um mm -hmm. so you i mean all of these other stages that you've done led to stagiaire which is kind of cool but yeah i yeah, I'm just curious, like, what what led you on to those? Like, what, what took you to your first one, and then did that light For a fire sure. that led to the next one and the next one? Or, you know, what was the process that 
got you. Yeah, a bit of the old origin story. I guess yeah. um, I grew up in restaurants, in a restaurant family, and kind of that's how I was exposed to wine initially. But um, when I was 18, decided to be an engineer because I didn't want to do the family biz, and I was an idiot even back then, as most of us are at 18 years old, and you have to make a decision with like what to do with your life. Engineering sucked, and I kind of like started looking at getting back into um, restaurants for but maybe more through the lens of wine. So I was doing these sommelier classes and I'd actually injured myself. So I was going twice a week to physical therapy, leaving work. And when I was done with physical therapy, I just kept leaving work at the same time twice a week, but going to these sommelier association meetings in Houston um, and learned a lot from kind of David Keck, who's an MS now. Oh yeah. He was advanced at the time. Um, Oh, cause but he, that was a was based, good foundation. And now he's in yeah, Vermont. Yeah, he was based down there in that area where you're from, mm-hmm. generally speaking. Nice. So that was kind of the start of like the conventional foundational wine knowledge. But I quickly got to the point of just like realizing Psalms are mostly full of shit. And like that MS culture, even back then, wasn't really for me. Um, but yeah. ultimately, like people couldn't answer a lot of the questions I had uh, about like why things do the things they do like why things taste this way why things, what affects this um and i just kind of figured if i wanted to keep learning i needed to just go work in a winery oh and vineyards and like start to like connect the dots and get more data points and just because it is so complex you know that's why we nerd out about it it's like so many variables so many things have changed like you almost can't really ever grasp your mind completely around it you definitely can't master it which was like one of the obviously things about the like quarter of master sommeliers which i think they changed their name um <laughs> yeah but so I, I got lucky and i well I, you know like i in a depressive state decided to quit my engineering job and signed on for a harvest gig at flowers in casadero on the Sonoma coast mm-hmm. um and like definitely looking back like i was very lucky um so i was working at their estate where they were growing pinot and chardonnay and you know got to do everything uh had the winemaker at the time dave and the assistant winemaker i'm so sorry like they were like just massively dumped knowledge on me and then the seller team like the seller masters and like kind of the head intern at the time like they taught me like so much just seller skills and it was a great working environment. Um, and now, can I Chantal, ask you? Yeah. So you had what? What level of the court of sommeliers had you gotten to? Or yeah, I I was going down W set actually, but studied oh W set okay. So I had three gotcha. and was working on diploma, but got it. Uh, okay, kind of gave that up. Um, Which is once I mean, at that level, this. they're they're very similar. I think in the introductory, other than like the service aspect of the sommelier yeah. court is you know something that WSET doesn't do um but yeah, yeah it's a lot of like tasting wines blind tasting talking about regions and grapes yeah. and it's all you know european focused and yeah. which is incredibly valuable like for me at least like i don't think you need it but context and again just information and understanding how people make wines there and how they taste and like what causes what and like climates I kind of just helps me understand what I'm working with here. 
I, yeah. I, I think like more context is always good. Not yeah necessarily yeah. important, but for me, I, it helps. I, I'm I'm digressing here, but I That's to me fun. it's it's um I'm now I now think of that training, especially W WSET and Court of Psalms, uh, as it's sort of like learning American history in elementary school in the 80s and 90s or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? You have to unlearn yeah. almost everything <laughs> later on because it's like it is a context and you do yeah. learn dates and numbers, but it's like you now realize how one-sided it is and how, you know, yes. how, how you, inadequate. Talking about I, <laughs> I was just uh, comparing, you know, WSET and Court of Master Psalms to learning American history in elementary school. Yeah, the, you kind of like learn why it was what you learned and the context right, right. there. And then you can start to explore. And also, it's yeah, you learn the rules in order to break them and right. learn how to break them, I guess. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, I guess in a real, I'm getting, I'm going deep here, but in it's a okay. fundamental way, it gives the it defines what wine is before you even have asked the question of what wine is. And so we end up, you know, wine ends up being this thing made with European grapes all over the world, as opposed to being, you know, local fermentations of whatever is ecologically available uh, in your area and, and finding that culture and beauty wherever you are, um, rather than just exporting a European grape, fermentation culture all, all around the planet right um, and i mean yeah. unfortunately like i'm not doing anything to like undo that personally but there's like you know the whole abv group and jade you know yes, people yeah. trying yep. to open up everyone's minds to yeah. alternatives yeah. to eurocentric fermentation of of wine yeah I, um, I which definitely is very support, very necessary I and exciting support- yeah, I thoroughly support what they're doing and I'm trying to do the same with this podcast. And and but I, I mean at the same time, like I'm not dissing on what you're doing or what anybody else is doing. And I, I know Jade says that too. It's not like we're anti vinifera. It's just like, you know, it's like realize that it's not the only kind of wine in the world. And, right. and uh, but you know, when you live in the Bay Area, it's like you it's very hard to find any other fruit to ferment. You know what I mean? Like you have to kind of work hard and, and grapes are abundant and we do have a great climate for European grapes here. So, it, you know, it's not like it's... it's That's it. Uh, it's uh, There's not much of an economic case yet for um, growing hybrids. Um, you know, Matt Neese, he does a great job with North American Press. Um, but I, I've reached out to him. I'm like, hey, if you ever have stuff that you can't take, let me know. I'll swoop in and work with the fruit. But there's just not really anything here. There's no, like there's not. some stuff out in like Nevada, kind of that some yep, people yep. work with, but yeah, there's, I'm there's like just not really, elevation. yeah, I'm just not really interested in working with to grapes that far away from where I am. <laughs> kind of like doesn't make sense contextually. Um, yeah, I think yeah, there's only a few. Um, I mean, I, I don't want us to get too far off, but there's only oh, a few hybrid vineyards in California, and yeah, it's funny that I mean, I'm I'm. I planted a few in my backyard um, just to, cause I, yeah, I think they'll do fantastic here. I think Matt's showing that they'll, they do fantastic here. So I, you know, I think it's only a matter of time. Like, it does. It does. It just takes yeah. time. Just like in France, yeah. you know, like some younger winemakers are starting to get excited about hybrids just cause like, especially in regions like Jura where like there's a lot of disease pressure, it, 
you realize like it is a lot more low input to farm. Yeah. And you know, we will probably get into this later, but like we talk about like natural winemaking and natural farming, like, I don't know. just like, I feel like so, so many times we're like trying really hard to like make these grapes grow and it doesn't feel natural. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, I think once people see how they work, there'll be more and more buy-in and there'll be more and more here eventually. But I mean, Growing vinifera is not impossible here. I mean, it's not. No, e- it's not even challenging in most. Of, yeah, that challenging yeah. in most of California. It's just right, a job. Right. Yeah. Um, but going back uh, to flowers, you know, I had an awesome first internship there in Sonoma, but I was still, oh, and they're a what... very like low input winery, like not natural by any means, but it was organic and biodynamic grapes. You know, like minimal intervention, I would say, but still like. You know, like adding acid sometimes and like you very like unworried about using sulfur. But at that time, like my first real time in wine country out in California, I was always asking like, well, and I had very limited exposure to natural wines or what would be called natural wines at the time. I was always asking like, well, why, like what would happen if we didn't do this? Like what, why do we need to add acid? And everyone's like, oh, you just like, there was like no even curiosity. It was just the fact. Like, oh, you can't do that. Like wines, you can't make wine without doing this. Or like maybe you can make it, but like it would fall apart immediately. Like you'd have to drink it within a year. And that was like one of the really upsetting things to me about California was just everyone spoke in like absolutes and no one <laughs> had much curiosity or Right, right. And then, like, you would all, I would talk to one, I would ask one winemaker a question and he would give me an absolute answer. And then I would ask another winemaker, both maybe like conventional winemakers, I would ask him the same question and he'd give me a completely different answer, but still like very absolute that like this is the truth and fact. And I, yeah, it was just off putting. And there's like, you know, California, even I did start to see like the competitiveness and the kind of backstabbing nature of things. It was like just a little off putting. Um, yes. But then I, I went to what were you gonna say, Adam? No, no, no. Go ahead. You went to go ahead. So from there, I went to work in New Zealand at Burn Cottage, which is a kind of a winery where Ted Lemon's a partner, Ted Lemon from Litteri in Sonoma. Um, very similar kind of like ethos and winemaking style to Flowers. You know, just like that minimal intervention, like premium Pinot Noir production uh and it was there like it was much less fun and (laughs) it just wasn't a very good learning environment it was a very sterile kind of Mm. seller sorry everyone um but and i was just like getting very disillusioned with making wine that way it didn't make sense to me and i was like fuck did i make where where did that come from like where did your you know wanting to to make it something different come from like how where where was that I don't gut? know. Um, maybe naivety. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, but it was just the way that it we were making were the wines didn't feel good. Different? We we were. Um, so in New Zealand, I ran into a. I like got yeah developed a really really good um, kind of like friend group. Is this my buddy Tino, who's now like a winemaker in Merceau. This guy Olivier uh, Lejeune, who makes wine in the Loire now. Um, uh, fuck, 
what's what's his name? The one of uh, Francois Ribot of Darde Ribot uh, in the Rhone. His son was kind of hanging out with us. There's this like nerdy natural wine crew in Cromwell, Central Otago, New Zealand, where yeah. like there really isn't any natural wine being made. In, but we were just hanging out, and that's where I really got a lot of exposure to got these uh, natural wines. And so, but yeah. it was beyond like not enjoying the way the wines tasted it was really just the way we were working and i loved the vineyards uh at burn cottage but it was like very unemotional and maybe that's the better way to like run a business <laughs> and a winery <laughs> but there was yeah i don't know this like disconnection and like well, a little can, bit of I mean, a lack of romance and a sterility that um i was hoping what, for more what what does that I mean, how does that translate into what you're actually seeing and experiencing in a place? Like, how do you find... Emo- well, let me ask it a I, different way. Like, now that you're doing your own thing, how do you incorporate emotion and passion into the actual, you know, the, the you know, processing of grapes at harvest, um, for example? Or for any winery tasks that you do? We like, were, that- like... So I felt like we were human machines and tools just, and like it was kind of recipe based. Mm. <sighs> trying to think like how much shit to talk here. Well, you um, don't have to talk. That's why I asked it more of like, what are you doing now? Well, it was, I, so I will, I don't mind getting into it, but it was like, so Ted Lemon, like I love the litter I wines and like some of the burnt cottage wines, really, really cool. And honestly, like formative to like my the way I make wines now. But Ted wouldn't even be Ted would be like making winemaking decisions and viticulture decisions from California just based on like photos and numbers. And it was this very like disconnected mm. thing. And then like there wasn't a good like culture of like learning in the winery. Like we didn't really get to taste anything. We were just like pump over tools. Like I would literally just do pump overs like all day long. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's just like we were machines and someone had this formula for making the wines and like it it was formulaic and like a little passionless. Yeah. So it, that's yeah. how it felt to me. Like I'm sure someone there was very passionate about what they were doing and uh the wines are good. But at the time like I met and we were still, you know, everything gets you know, 50 to 100 parts of sulfur coming in and like a lot acid adjustments occasionally. And like there was one time I went to do a pump over on something we had destemmed and like processed the day before. And I thought like I'd fuck something up. I was like hung over. But like I started pumping over and like the wine was white. And like there's so much sulfur, like we just like bleached the color out of the wine. Oh, wow. um, and like that, like as the sulfur binds to other things and like it releases the color. Um, right, right. The wine was totally fine. But I was just like, what the fuck are we doing? And I had right. met this uh, Japanese couple, Yoshi uh, and Kyoko Sato, and they were making natural wines there. And I started kind of working for them and then kind of like phased out Burn Cottage and was like putting all of my energy into helping them. And it's mm-hmm. just like a light going off, you know, like just very intuitive, thoughtful, slow, um, intentional winemaking um, yeah. without... I think that, you know, they maybe use a little bit of sulfur at bottling. Um, but in, during the vinification, nothing, you know, right. just thinking how to like take these grapes that we've got and make them into something really pretty and lively. And they yeah. were a big part of kind of my tasting crew and 
learning and tasting experience. And they also kind of connected me with people in Australia and France and got me moving on along that sort of stage path. Do you want me to talk about that really quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on like the bouncing around, but it was like, I guess, yeah, it's, it all like highlights that, I mean, it sounds like this was, you were given a picture of, you got, it sounds like you got this big introduction to just like a download at Flowers. And then you sort of saw, this other side of of winemaking that is you know which is probably pretty normal conventional winemaking commercial winemaking even if it's not conventional all right so then you went to france what were the big you know where were you and what were the big learning lessons like what was the next you know what how did your mind change while working in france um i think the things that started to stick with me after new zealand um that i really loved so before Going to France, I went and did like winter work in Australia, in South Australia, in the Adelaide Hills, um, mostly working with Gareth at Gentlefolk, but kind of, you know, helping everyone. And that was kind of the start of the Adelaide Hills basket range, natural wine boom. And it was just very exciting and lots of amazing people kind of doing individually great things. Um but working together and I just kind of saw a vision of like a community that I really wanted for myself. I realized Mm. it was something that I cared a lot about and I, I, you know, I wanted to stay in Australia later, but it didn't work out. But from there I went to France and was supposed to work with Julien Guyot at Côte de Vigne de Man in uh, the Macron, but he kind of ghosted me. Um, which was fine. And I, through Aaron Askoff, I got connected with Ludwig Bendernagel in Pipien, uh, sorry, in Polini, in the Jura. Mm. And, you know, w- the first thing he told me when I emailed him was like, if you want to learn how to make wine, you shouldn't come here because we're not enologists <laughs> and you won't learn anything. And I was like, sick. That's what I want. Um <laughs> And with Ludwig and his wife, Natalie, like she was on like the first season of like French MasterChef, I think. Like she was a beautiful like chef and like they just, again, like created this community and this like joy around everything. And like, you know, they would, he was Bavarian, she was German, but you know, very, uh, she was French, like very passionate and they'd get into fights all the time. But like they, they, we would only pick on the weekends because when their friends could come and help them pick. And then during the week, there was almost nothing to do. Like I would do some punch right. downs and maybe move some wines around. But it was this like very, very much lower so, input winemaking compared to what I had been used to. You know, you press the wine yeah. into the tank and then it sits there. And then you de-stem and put it into tank and you, you do a punch down or two a day and like you press it. Like and it goes into barrel and you're done. Um, yeah. It- so you're saying the the harvest, even something like the picking decision, which is considered this big controlling aspect oh, yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. wine for winemakers, was not made based on a winemaking decision. It was made based on a community decision. It was, it yes. was like an 
I it love was literally that. like when they could get friends in and like it affects the wines like sometimes absolutely sometimes the wine so like the earlier wines like sometimes the poussards is like a little thin and shrill because he told friends to come out that weekend and maybe it wasn't optimally ripe maybe it would have been good to like do it the following weekend but everyone was out so they'd pick it and then right. sometimes this like the Sauvignon would be like 14 15 percent alcohol because like you know just that's the weekend everyone could come out and that's when they yeah. did it um yeah. and I, I, that's not exactly like how i want to do things right but like, right i get that, that that's yeah. like <laughs> again you know like when we talk about terroir like being kind of silliness like those are right or that's maybe if that's decision. part of terroir like the, yeah, yeah the, like that's those are the decisions and inputs that affect the wine more than like what type of dirt right. is right, right there i love that. um but yeah, it was just like a care about community and like fun and like a way of living that like really stuck with me um, and something that I just really started to like wanted, wanted to belong to or like wanted to build for myself. And because um, Ludwig was only really working on the weekends, I rode my bike to Philippe Bonnard's house in Papillon one day and just asked him if I could work for him and like really fucked up French. And he kind of like <laughs> laughed. And, like, I started picking with them. And then, like, I stuck around after the first pick and, like, was just watching them work in the winery. And everyone was, like, pretty wasted at this point. And because, like, he's kind of an infamous drunk. And I I found out later after I left that, like, if you can survive working for him, you must really be able to drink. And I, (laughs) you know, my body definitely, definitely hurt after that (laughs) harvest. Um like you know like a hose fell and grapes were launching all over the cellar and like no one was really paying attention except for me and i like <laughs> grabbed it like ran up this ladder threw it into the tank and like t- secured it into place and everyone's like who the hell is this kid and then philippe was like okay from now on you work in the cellar so then i started like five days i would work in the cellar during the week with philippe and then i'd go and help ludwig on the weekends and it really was just, yeah, like making wine. Ludwig used sulfur, but Philippe and Tony didn't. But it was like the wines make themselves kind of like. Yeah. It, it was, yeah, there's this relaxation around the winemaking, whereas everything was so frantic and fraught in New Zealand and like in the United States. Um, I don't know. I just. I, I, I like, well, I think. Again, it's this mental shift where I think we've really looked at wine and winemaking as this extra cultural, you know, commercial commodity thing for so long. It's really hard to understand. Like, it's a whole different mindset, right? It's like if your culture is one that produces fruit for fermentation and it it's becomes more of this cultural thing, like a way of life that includes your whole community rather than yeah. this thing. And, and so the importance that you're putting on all these other things are like this is just part of the culture like we don't stress out about you know you know it's just implicit in the fact that we're here doing this and every year this is going to happen there's no stress about it like it is you know it's a timeless process that we're part of because (laughs) it's part of our culture kind of yeah it's like happened so long and existed so long before people were even born that there's like no worry it's just like a guaranteed like yeah it's, it's gonna happen but no, the, right. the the sense of community though is like incredible. You know, like people from everyone from town would come out and just help. Yeah, and like all the old guys, like Philippe's 
some of Philippe's dad's friends, some of Philippe's friends, Tony's friends, they just hang in the cellar, like sometimes helping, most of the time just drinking. But like people wanted to be part of it. And I am right. like pretty happy and like so thankful like here in the Bay Area, we have like a great wine community and people show up to help me pick. It's never, I'm never stressed. I just know it's going to happen. Like I ask friends like, hey, who wants to come hang out and label or bottle, disgorge pet nuts, pick some grapes. And we're starting to have more and more of this just excitement and like acceptance that is just like part of our life here is right. uh, showing up and squishing grapes and making wine. Um, so that, that was kind of, yeah, just the stuff that I saw there that I wanted to like, I didn't know where I wanted to be, you know, stagiaire, the name like implies this kind of like always learning and like sense of impermanence and transitions. Um, I landed in Santa Cruz and now I'm in the Bay, but, and I don't know where I'll be next, but kind of just, I always want to have a good community around me. Well, this is like, I love, I think I was going to ask you some questions that tried to dissect, I think where your, your head and your heart are with regards to winemaking, but it sounds like a, a much more holistic thing. I mean, what, can you put into words like what what is important to you about the the way that you make wine for stagiaire your winery yeah and i think i see a way to also transition more into like some other topics we wanted to get into but yeah please um go for it the way i make wine and what's important um it's like i mean the way i make wine isn't doesn't seem interesting to me but like maybe <laughs> it's interesting i don't know like i love making wine and it's like it wine making and the craft is like my favorite thing but then like ludwig would say it's just like when you think about it like someone coming to learn i don't feel like i'm doing anything crazy like i come up with some like neat techniques to try to achieve like textures and structures and feelings and emotions that i want to capture and like maybe i'll like finagle some tools to do it rather than buying something expensive but it's pretty low tech i you know i've just always wanted to work with really good grapes and well-farmed grapes things that like take care of the earth and then i just don't want to put anything into the wines i just want it to be this honest simple trans transparent like literally and figuratively uh <laughs> beverage um and then i think like when I started, I was definitely more like maybe going through like the equivalent of like the angsty, obnoxious, like 13 year old um, atheist. Like that's just like won't shut up about it. And like that's how I was with like sulfur free winemaking and being zero zero and being natural. And now I, I don't really care so much like what other people do and like how people like greenwash or um, co-opt those terms. Um, I think I'm really interested in yeah just kind of like a balanced life for myself it was really really hard kind of getting started and being working the way i do and getting started you know like with nothing kind of naively and honestly looking back on it a lot of naivety and probably luck <laughs> um i was you know like working at a bakery and then i'd go from the bakery to the restaurant and then the next day i'd wake up and go to the, work for someone else's vineyard then i'd work in my vineyard and like i just kind of it was a lot to kind of get things going from nothing. Like I kind of was just doing whatever I could, whatever felt good. And then, but also what I needed to do to survive um, and keep money going into the company to keep the company growing, the winery growing 
to get to a point where it would eventually be kind of like self-sustaining. Um, just long weeks, like easily 60 hours a week, every week, rarely days off. Um, and only like that's outside of harvest during harvest, it would be a lot more. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of just last year ran myself into the ground finally and started having really bad, like physical and mental health problems. And so now I've kind of just been trying to, luckily I've gotten stagiaire to the point where it is, I think like sustainable, like not really paying myself off of it yet. I think I'm going to start next month drawing some money out, but um, looking at how to center myself and the business in a more sustainable way and like, yeah, maybe not permanent, but like just, trying to slow down and like take the time that I've never had before to like actually pick my head up and look at where I'm going and steer the ship and decide where I want to go physically, like geographically and stylistically with the wines. Um, Island in fruit sources. um, I'm not really farming anything this year. Um, The last vineyard that I was still taking care of last year, I'm just kind of working with the owners and helping them um giving them like directions with the farming but i had already trained up one of their work one of their employees last year and been working with him and another guy to kind of make sure things are being done well and i'm taking uh all the fruit this year but just going to be buying the grapes from them um so i can focus on the business and myself and kind of planning and yeah i don't know just searching i guess trying and thinking about what I want next. Yeah, I mean, I'm finding viticulture, I mean, which is what I'd like to spend a majority of my time doing, but it, it is uh, it is time consuming. I mean, it can take all of your time. And if you're trying to do sales and everything else, which you yeah. are, I know. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you have all of the, you know, I mean, anybody who started a small business probably can relate to what you just related, you know, the that opening phase of where you're just running ragged working nonstop, and then you come to a breaking point and you're like yeah either like i i'm gonna quit or this business is gonna quit or we or we have to find a balance and you know like um and and make it actually a, a sane adventure <laughs> that, that uh right that, like is at a human scale like a real human scale that is possible well and so that for me like uh my whole thing is i don't i want it to be human scale like and so i want to figure out a way for it to be like largely you know just me maybe eventually one employee and like one or two people helping me during harvest um there's this like transition point that i kind of see this like breaking point where once you start making more wine then you need to work with distribution and then you need to make more wine and then you need more employees and then you need a sales manager and then you need this and then nice. it like really quickly like cascades be, and then like yeah. there's become a, a business manager there's yeah, a rather than, exactly and there's this very big like no man's land zone somewhere between like 2000 to like 4000 5000 case production where it's like just not really it's hard to make it work and i'm trying to like find that spot yeah to where i just want to stay small um so i can stay focused and just work with good vineyards and the people that i like yes i I feel that a lot and it it does 
feel like a good transition to talk about this topic that I wanted to bring up where Mm. we talked a lot um, before, I mean, not on this recording, but the previous one that is is not this, uh, about just how financially challenging it is to make wine in any way that makes financial sense. And as as I've considered this, as we've talked about this, you know, I, I came to this kind of realization that a really good analogy for wine at the level that I make it and that it sounds like you make it, um, especially with what you just said, is like art, being an artist is actually a really good analogy because it's like you don't, like if if you're an artist, you don't outsource the painting like you know, or the sculpting or whatever your art yeah. craft is. Some of, some of them do and everyone in the art community talks shit about them. But also maybe they're the ones that are like living the most comfortably. So that could be right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just like there are ghost writers as well. There are you yeah. know, the people who use the, their names and on the books, but it's written by other people for them. Um, I, but right. But like most, I mean, not most, I don't know, but you and I don't want to be that kind of winemaker or artist, however you want to put it. And, and that, and it kind of, there's an intuitive sense to that of like, if you like, creating art you don't want to outsource that you don't want to become the guy that's like running a business where you have a bunch of artists working <sighs> for you <laughs> like yeah. you're the art you're an artist like that's your 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 joy and your love is in creating not I'm, in I'm doing managing this, creators this idiot thing of being a winemaker because i like making wine right i'd rather <laughs> i'd rather outsource the business part and like right hey, someone right. to do my taxes i actually like touching the grapes and like yeah. hooking up the pump and driving the forklift and like smelling the ferment and like doing all that shit. Right. I'd rather outsource everything. Um, <laughs> right. But right. like it's, and then, you know, this also transitions into this, this brings up another topic of like custom crush winemaking, um, which a bunch of my young winemaking friends where I used to be upset about people making not natural wine and saying they made natural wine. Now the topic is like people, this is the topic just among small winemakers but like custom crush wine brands where people don't really make the wine at all right like right. show up at events and pour the wines and they're not i don't know the yeah. business card says they're the winemaker right. but i don't know the are they the artists or like right if someone else did the sculpture uh well but <laughs> right. we wanted to talk more about money i guess and well i mean more why do we do it despite this I, I mean i think that i think it's a given i don't know i i mean i think yeah the thing no there's are, there's a lot of considerations um yeah and it's like just things and I, for people to be aware of and, and i like i think both you and i want anybody who's thinking about making wine or considering starting a business that is a winery to feel free to reach out to us and we'll you know you know you can contact 100 percent, and we can give you all the the details we're happy to offer numbers and our own experience about things but you making know, one is so hard there's like very, no way yeah there's no <laughs> recipe i can give you and if there was i would want it for myself to like success right. <laughs> right. um right so like i'm i've had people that have been incredibly generous with me you know like especially on the business side like i feel like i learned a lot from like Megan from Margins and then Alex Pomerantz from Subject to Change, like big, big supporter and like yeah. incredibly generous with time and knowledge and the Leyloon guys as well, Shant and Diego. Um, nice. I, yeah. Also, I just like talking about wine stuff. So 
yeah. literally right, always right. happy to chat hit me up on instagram or shoot me an email or something um but i think considerations are like i think maybe a lot of people want this lifestyle that's like projected in books or on instagram now and i try to like project like the chaos of it and like how <laughs> not great it is sometimes but like if you're if if you don't start with a lot of money it's really hard um right. it's really hard to f- and this is just talking about california because i'm not yeah, experienced yeah, with everything else but um you know like you can't it's hard to just find somewhere to make wine like there's not a lot of like winery spaces um available like shared spaces available and if the ones that are available are quite expensive and you often can't really do your own winemaking in them. I always have people reaching out to me to see if like they can make wine in the space that I work out of, but there's just like not really any room for anyone else. Yeah. And you are going to go through this phase of like the first year you make wine, it takes a lot of money to buy grapes and buy barrels and whatever equipment you need. And then buy bottles and then buy the closures and then buy the labels and then store the wines and then ship the wines out to accounts and then wait. Well, wait however long for the wines to be ready. And then once you're selling them, you know, wait for people to pay you. And then it's probably like the next harvest already and you're barely getting paid for the wines from the first year and you've already got to buy equipment and buy grapes again. And so the cash flow is never great. So you're kind of having to do these side jobs to pay your own rent and your winery rent and give this constant like influx of capital to the business so that it can grow so that you can eventually hopefully live off of it and it is it it is i guess a common like small business thing but it seemed like very maybe just my situation was very fraught and painful and like i really wouldn't wish what i went through on most of my worst enemies maybe my like worst 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 enemies I, I just can't. I don't really have any enemies that I, don't, that I know of. Um, but I, I would sometimes get down and I feel bad. Like some some people kind of like called me out for like people had come. It was kind of a joke, but like people would come to me asking for advice. And the first thing I always tell people half as a joke is just like, don't do it. Like right, right. it sucks. It's so fun. I love it so much. And especially where I'm at now, I'm like starting to be like healthy and happy like in general for the first time in a while um it's gonna be hard for a long time and it's likely that it's gonna be hard forever and it's like statistically just there's not a lot of people really making it in california making wine on a small scale um right you know when i talk to my when i hang out with my winemaking buds like we nerd out on viticulture and winemaking, but most of the time we spend talking is like figuring out how to make money and figuring out alternatives <laughs> to like distribution and yeah. like scheming and like, you know, <laughs> sharing resources. It's like, it's surprising. Like, yeah, a lot of my thought right now goes into like, how do I like make more money for the same amount of wine that I'm making right now? Yeah. Um, so it is like you say, I think it's good to think of it as like an artistic kind of pursuit and it is that maybe artist lifestyle i feel kind of gross saying this like i don't know like i'm sitting in a cafe smoking cigarettes in paris but <laughs> there you're not gonna like it's not a pretentious artist lifestyle it's a it's a real yeah, thing like, <laughs> like, well, it's just like, like it's it's good to be realistic about like the amount of work that it's gonna take yeah 
and how likely it is to like make a lot of money or yeah. rather it's that is likely that you're not ever going to be making a lot of money right. and like also that's okay but you just have to right. be realistic and intelligent and like so where i'm at now is i'm wor- working towards like trying to have the winery and the vineyards and where i'm living all much closer to each other if you had one piece of advice for somebody that you think is the most helpful thing to prepare them or at least to to get them heading in the direction of success potentially what would it be and i guess my i don't know i was yeah i'll let you answer that first but everything that you were saying it was reminding me that you know you were talking about like you used to get criticized because you would discourage people from becoming winemakers like don't do it and it's funny i've written um an article called why you should not make wine at home so like discouraging people from doing home winemaking but i know you and i have talked and been like that actually might might be a really good outlet yeah it was kind of you know it's a tongue-in-cheek article because it's more about just like you know the amount of time and energy and money that you will spend to make some really bad wine in your apartment um you might as well just spend that and get some incredible you know buy buy the best wine in the world you know, you could probably get a couple cases of some really good wine for the amount that you will spend <laughs> on <laughs> making some really bad wine at home. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and you'll have much more fun drinking it and have half the time doing so. You know, ha- you have half the heartache and energy and stress of doing it uh, as physical strain as well. But, well, this, bef- well, but if you I, have I that itch, something... I guess my... Yeah, no, my. I'm just to finish that thought. It was like if you have that need, if you find yourself making wine despite all of these things, you know, maybe you're that person that like, like this is, you know, there. This is uh, something to consider. Like that's, and I think that's kind of what you and I are saying. We are like we found ourselves being that person who was like, yeah, it's like you know, it's taxing financially, taxing physically, stressful, you know, mentally and emotionally, and yet. Every year, we're just like so excited to do it all over again, <laughs> and yeah, uh, that's kind of how we knew we should continue doing it and well, try to. I want, do, yeah. I want to like give some people the opportunity. To, I don't want to like totally shut down home winemaking, even though I've no, I know, really yeah, done totally. it. Yeah, yeah, but like say your piece, yeah. Well, so one of the coolest things to me was was during like COVID when you know, no one had work and everyone was just like posting really horrible pictures of sourdough bread that they were making on Instagram. (laughs) Like people picked up these hobbies and some people like got into like just making small amounts of wine at home. And like my friend Riley was working with me and he did a bunch of like little like carboy keg projects. And then um, my friend Carlos in Los Angeles, he started like doing some like home stuff, like picking up where his dad had left off. And like, there is this history and culture of home winemaking in California. And it's often like, you know, a group of friends, very community based. And like, there's knowledge out there. Like you can even like naturally, like you can do it. There's, you know, some of the guys at Ruby Wines in San Francisco, they, they do a bunch of like kind of Sauvage, rescue missions like taking grapes that no one else wants and they make wines for the community here um but i i was a lot of these like home winemaking projects were really really exciting to me because there were people making wines without this baggage of air quotes knowing 
how wine is supposed to be made. Right. And when it's not your business and you're just doing something for fun or for this artistic pursuit, you can like try radical things and just like fuck around and find out. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's some like cool wines that like I tried and it was some of the most exciting stuff. I like wanted people to write an article about just this like, I w- and I wish it had continued this like resurgence of like home winemaking. Um, so maybe if you're feeling the itch, decide like whether you want it to be a small hobby that you can maybe just do at home with your friends or if you want to devote all of your life and thought for the next couple of years too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I, I love that. Yeah. No. And I think it's, it's also, I mean, the more, you know, these fermentation cultures, you know, ferment in the local, you know, non-commercial places like i think it will be a much more indigenous local based you know natural uh, cultural based thing you know we'll we'll start you you know most a lot of people who start making wine at home look around and they don't know where to get cabernet sauvignon and so they end up making wine with strawberries or blackberries or whatever is growing Mm -hmm. around them and that's where i think you get some really cool stuff as well like i you know i think that's uh i mean some of the 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 most fun you know i i I interviewed this guy who started wild texas wines and he really just started by fermenting fruit in his apartment because that's all he could get and then he realized hey like you know my family has this ranch in texas that has all this wild fruit growing and so he moved back and started a winery based on literally just foraging his family's ranch and so it's all 100 percent like ecological naturally foraged stuff i mean it's incredible i think it's just a model that leads to a, a really great development of something that is like you said, like you don't quote unquote know. And so you yeah. do is, you know, just local and natural to you. And, and I think it ends up with some really cool results and I can't yeah. wait. I mean, I, well, I won't even go into it, but yeah, there's, a, there's all kinds of stuff like there's that. There's few fruit everywhere. Like ferment. Yeah. Just see, yeah. see, squish it, see if it will ferment. My friend Valley that used to, that was part of Mountain Misery, a winery on the Sierra Foothills. They're doing their own thing now, but they had a, found a bunch of cool old peaches up there oh. and made this peach mm. pet nut that was so freaking cool, so good. And I, I think, yeah, I think she was talking about continuing to make more and maybe scaling it up. But like, there's just yeah, especially when yeah. it's not your business, just like right, pick what you find, the- squish it in a bucket. Put it into some jars, let it ferment, and see what it tastes right. like. Yeah, and and if you if you have a community, I mean, I, I'll give a shout out to you know the people that helped me really cut my teeth in winemaking, which is the Cellar Masters Amateur Winemaking Club here in Southern California, who I just discovered through a friend because I was like, I'm really interested in making wine. And they're like, Oh, you got to check out Cellar Masters, and so I got a lot of mentorship and just like you know that community of like how to even begin like what to even think about what you're you know what what the process of winemaking is all about and where to get grapes or where to get whatever you want you know in terms of fruit and then yeah i mean you might find that in your own local community and and that develops fun stuff too and you might find that's as valuable as the winemaking which you know you might never end up making great wine at home or you might you might make some incredible wine at home, but it sort of becomes beside the point if you're having fun you know right um, right and then maybe develop a local di- distillation somebody one of your friends who gets into you know distillation and buys a still and they get all the crappy wine so there's a you have a secondary yep. source for everything that doesn't work out 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of ways to scratch the itch, I guess. Mm. So to the to that question that I asked you, um, if you did have one, like if somebody wants to go into business oh, doing shit, this, sorry, yeah, you the no, that's all right. You you, I, I mean, my 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 one thing is like figure out how to have a tasting room with your winery, and if you can't do that, like to be very careful that you know how to like yeah. sell your wine um, direct before you just jump into making it because that is the the toughest part of it. Um, and I, I think a, a, having a tasting room in a good area is like a really easy solution. To that. It's not easy, but it's like it is the most direct solution to that. Um, and it, and once you try to figure out what goes into having a tasting room in a good area, you realize why it's so difficult to sell wine direct because, you know, that's that presents its own challenges with, yeah. um, you know, permitting and all everything involved in that licensing and permitting and everything involved in getting that set up. Um, but if you can do that, like you are 50% of the way to like having successful wine business potentially. Do you have anything like that that you'd recommend? Hmm. Yeah. On the like financial side, I'd say um, one, just like centralize, you know, like hopefully live by the winery, have the vineyards yeah. closer to your winery just to minimize drive time and gas. Um, work with, you know, the most affordable, high quality grapes you can find. And then, yeah, the like the tasting room, figure out ways to like focus on direct to consumer sales. So there's kind of three tiers of sales. You can sell wine directly to a consumer at essentially retail price, or you can sell it wholesale to a shop or a bar, which is maybe like 40% less. And then, or you can sell it to a distributor or importer at FOB pricing, which is 40 to 50% below that. Um, right. I, I don't know. I might be, I'm messing those numbers up a bit, but it's another step down. Um, yeah. And so you kind of want, if you're not making a lot of wine, you want to maximize direct to consumer sales. If you're going to try to scale and be a massive sort of bigger winery, you're going to need to rely on distribution a lot. And your margins are smaller, but your volumes are greater. So the question, yeah, that I wanted to get your thoughts on were was where, in terms of where wine is right now in the world and what you see as you survey the landscape that is you know, our current wine industry, where do you think the biggest opportunity to improve our ecological impact is and, and be a more beneficial force in the world? <laughs> um, well, I'm not a like scientist, so I don't like know the biggest one, but like the like bigger low hanging fruits that I see are like, you know, packaging and bottle recycling um yeah or just like you know how bad bottles are and i know you've talked about that on the podcast um yeah. and then you know maybe just talking more like on the natural wine side of things but like you you know farming always and organics always kind of like there's always more to be done and a conversation i was having with someone about like just setting ourselves apart and like standing for something it was like, and like, you know, like people co-opting natural wine. And I was like, well, we kind of co-opted natural wine because like people in France started making natural wine a long time ago. 
And what they were doing was like kind of radical was this like pushback against like, again, like it's easier for people, people talk about like using sulfur or not using sulfur, minimal sulfur, but like the big change ecologically and environmentally was like the pushback against chemical um, agriculture, right? Like chemical fertilizers, Roundup, uh, everything that was developed after the world wars, like that's how farming was through the 70s, 80s. And it was a big deal to switch to organics. Right. And, you know, like a lot of those that the kind of later generation or like the guys that are getting older now um, that we really like in France, we'll just say, you know, they're organic farmers, but like they're not really pushing that envelope anymore. And they don't necessarily need to. Like they've done like really good work. Um, but now the next step, I think for the younger generation is to like really push agriculture even further, um, like into regenerative farming practices and sustain, like just really long-term sustainability and like thinking about, you know, the, yeah, long-term vision of the planet, not thinking like about tomorrow, but years, years and generations down the way, like organic farming, simply is like don't spray chemicals but we're often still like doing lots of tilling and other things that aren't necessarily building up soil or capturing carbon and there's a lot of opportunities for us to i think take you know bottom of the barrel like basic organic viticulture and really upgrade it um and that's a way to if we want to talk about the environment like i think that's something important more so than like filtering or not filtering or putting sulfur in the wine or not putting sulfur into the wine. Yeah. Um, yeah. With and the then, other. you know, th- there's, these are all like things that are hard to talk about because the reason we talk about sulfur is because it's a very easy conversation to have and like people understand yeah. it. It's, it's like, oh, sulfur is bad. I should ask if there's sulfur. The answer is yes <laughs> right. or no. But yeah. like no one wants, and that's like a 10 second conversation. No one wants to have the conversation where they're like, so tell me about the farming. I'm like, well, in this vineyard, normally it's not irrigated, but we did irrigate a bit this year because we're in this like four-year drought and I make compost tea to like favor fungi more so than bacteria. And I spray that during the winter when it's raining because I feel like it gets into the soil more. And I do horsetail teas mixed in with whatever like more off-the-shelf organic spray I am going to be doing early season to mitigate powdery mildew. And then I transition to this and like people, people's eyes glaze over. And then like, and like you start talking about sheep and tilling and mowing and people are like, what? I just want to know if I'm doing the right thing. Like, I think the consumer is never really going to be able to like care about that maybe, or a very few will. And I think what's important is like people that are, are actually like in the industry buying for restaurants and shops and bars, I think they should be educated and should be like pushing for thoughtful farming and yeah. mindful farming and mindful working. Um, Cause they're in the industry and they should be understanding yeah. and researching and learning and yeah. caring, hopefully. Right. Yeah. Especially well if said. they're working in natural wine. Well said. <laughs> well, before we get cut off again, what, <laughs> How can people find out more about Stagiaire and get your wines? Like, what's your process? I know you have a, 
it's not just uh, people can just buy your wine anytime. What, can you talk a little bit about that? And also, well, yeah, let's answer that question first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I sell my, I sell directly in California. So, like, I mean, most natural wine spots in California carry my wines when they're in stock. And if they don't, ask them to buy them. Uh, <laughs> and they, they know who I am and they can reach out to me. Um, you, I sell stuff online a couple of times a year when I have new releases. And I'm starting to do, I'm planning my first kind of like winery event pickup party release thing right before harvest this year so if you're in the bay area you'll be able to like come out drink buy some bottles um and yeah you can also uh, outside of when i'm shipping online like i don't know if you want something i can usually you know put together a six pack or a 12 pack to ship to you if it's not too hot it's too hot now but uh yeah outside of peak hot years i can usually ship a case we're almost in it's i think it's going to be the solstice tomorrow or the next day whoa i know i'm excited one of my pagan rituals of the year um (laughs) so talk you uh speaking of pagan rituals you did a wine fair this year can you talk about Uh, that as well was that a pagan ritual (laughs) i don't just say it was a terrible okay (laughs) (laughs) um i yeah i organized a wine fair earlier this year just because there didn't seem to be a big kind of natural wine fair in the bay there was this fair called brumaire and i I, and i i'm sure i'm gonna get in trouble and people are gonna be like what about this fair what about this fair um there there were there were you know there have been like some good small fairs but there was this wine natural wine fair brumaire that was more eurocentric um that they were gonna bring back but that didn't happen um when i find out found that out i was like well everyone's been talking about doing something so going back to being an idiot like i'm like i'll i'll just do it like um so i you know partnered with alex pomerantz and his team at subject to change to organize uh, what we called wine from here because a, a lot of the wine fairs natural wine fairs are kind of more eurocentric and it often felt like domestic wine was um kind of an add-on or afterthought but yeah. we have like so much cool domestic natural wine now, just yeah. in California, but also like in many other states. And so I just kind of wanted to create a fair where they were, the local winemakers were the star of the show. And, you know, going back to like talking about being natural, like how natural is like shipping a bottle across the country to the port, then across the ocean to the ports here and then in a truck to the shop and then all over the states like why are we like yeah if we're trying to be environmentally conscious and natural like and i'm at fault too like i drink so much freaking french wine um but like if we're trying to do a good job like we just we need drink locally buy locally we buy the local this is the example i use a lot you know like we we go to the farm to table restaurants that like celebrate the local farmer but then why are we drinking like like innocuous rosé from Provence. Like right. why aren't those restaurants selling local wine? Why aren't, why aren't we drinking local wine? Because it's like, honestly, it's it's like pretty fucking good. There like, are certain, it's funny you bring up rosé from Provence because I'm like, there are certain wines where it's like, yeah, great. Like, I mean, you know, you, there, you know there, there are certain French and Italian, German wines that like you can't, they're not being done in any other way anywhere else. No, like, definitely. Yeah, and you, yeah. And you like want to incredible, taste those. mind-blowing wines. Yeah. Hell yeah! But like so provincial rosé. I mean, like 
I can give you a provincial rosé made in California or a provincial style, just as beautiful, maybe even better than anything you'll find in Provence. Yeah. here from here. Oh like my gosh! Just, if you want an easy wine, we got <laughs> yeah. you covered. Don't yeah, worry. Exactly. Not that that's all we do, but like, <laughs> yeah, the bar is very low when it comes yeah. to bundle rosé. <laughs> like we. Well, I can find something affordable for you. And if you want yeah. mind-blowing wines, like yeah. we've got some of those too. Like, Yeah, we got those too. Yeah. There's some, if you want to buy expensive wines, like I'll just charge you double for my stuff. Like <laughs> exactly. I've got you. And like, the, no, there's some people making like really freaking like thought-provoking, intentional, cool wines. Yeah. Like, I don't know. If anyone wants a long list of people doing like zero, zero or just like low intervention domestic wines, like... Maybe I should put together one of those. Um, is what's the best contact for you through your website? I'd say Instagram, or Instagram. yeah, you can okay. find my email on the website. And Instagram um, is at stagiaire stagiaire dot wine dot wine. Okay, yeah. And um, but the wine. So that was the point of the wine fair um, was to just gather more so. You know, again, like people actually making wine and people doing what. Just I mean, it's kind of. It wasn't for me, but I was in charge, so I got to do whatever I wanted. And so I just brought, invited the people that I thought were doing cool stuff and in viticulture and winemaking. And it was a lot of my like long-term like Instagram pen pals that I've been interacting with from other parts of the country and haven't had a chance to like actually meet in person. And then my friends in California and the people doing cool stuff here. Um, not that it was an exhaustive ultimate list. You know, there's a lot of people that couldn't make it and people that I wish I could invite could have invited but like you know we had a limited space um but it was really exciting and like it's hard for i didn't get to digest it as a consumer but i was hoping that there would i kind of organized it like regionally and i was hoping that people would kind of see some sort of through line and maybe get some context and understanding of kind of what's happening here and that there's like really cool exciting things happening here yeah i love that well thanks that's uh that's really lovely. I hope to attend that in the future as well. And I really, obviously, appreciate the the um, ethos behind it. <laughs> um, everything yeah. that I like about it as well. This is great. Thank you again. <laughs> I hope it was. I hope it was good. You it you should re- you should release the uh, the the lost episode somehow. I like will. Patreon I, I think, or something. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm going to, yeah, release it to Patreon um, and just, you know, yeah, because there, uh, there's a lot of good stuff in it. I did. I re-listened to it and I was like, yeah, there's good stuff here. I just wanted to, uh, yeah, I think this was Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And if you did and would like to support this podcast, please do. There is a Patreon link in the show notes where you can subscribe with a monthly very low subscription to add monetary support or please subscribe on your feed whatever wherever you listen to this podcast subscribe and follow this podcast so that you will automatically download it when each new episode comes out that's one of the few metrics that we can measure to see the support and and listenership of this and Otherwise, if you're already listening, subscribe, support, whatever, uh, just a long-time listener, haven't done anything, please uh, do a review. If you would, any positive review with five stars and a nice word <laughs> is fantastic and helpful and uh, really improves the algorithmic performance of this podcast. So thank you so much. <laughs>